you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. So we are going to be in a very short, if you will, Easter series. Starts today, ends next week on Easter. But we have been, for some time, as I've mentioned, working through these building blocks, and we have kind of concluded that time as far as the values and the training. We're taking this time of celebrating Easter, and after we come back from Easter, we're going to get into the Scripture on on biblical deacons and continue working in that direction. But for the last few weeks, especially the last couple sermons, I know it's been heavy for me in a lot of ways. I imagine some of the content of just the passage and maybe even the sermon has been a little heavy in some ways. Of course, encouraging in the gospel, but weighty and heavy, no doubt. And so it is nice to take a break, if you will, from those heavier subjects and really focus on uh, really the hope of our gospel, the hope of our salvation, the work of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, there's weighty matters just within that, that story itself, but there is a great hope for us all. And so looking forward to just celebrating Easter with you. And I want to continue just to echo what Nick was saying earlier. Continue to pray for those uh, young men and even women next door, and even Kevin Agar as he works over there, that the Lord would just use him in a very unique and mighty way, but also just in our relationship with those kids as they come over, that we would know them by name, that we would not give in to the excuse, I'm not good with names. No, we would hear their name and remember it and then know them and call them by name and have fun with them, build, begin to build relationships with them and just love on them and serve in this way. I, I, I want you to continue to pray and just continue to discipline your mind and be ready. And even for you parents with kiddos, be preparing your kids to interact with other kids and not to just hang out with our same old kids that we always do. That's easy to do, to hang out with just familiar faces. But have our kids interacting with new kids and getting to know them and becoming friends with them. That's what we need to do. I know you guys can do it and you will do it. And I, and I just want to continue to, to be that voice from the front leading in that way. So let's read together. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. And when he had said these things, that is Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Where are you untying it? Or why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You may be seated. So if you guys have been, if you remember kind of the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was a lot of social media attention, still is a lot of social media attention. It's a weird age being in a time where you can essentially watch war in real time uh, on the internet. And you guys may have recalled or seen the headlines about the billionaire Elon Musk and how he's intervened. He's like the modern day, what is it, uh, Stark from Iron Man, right? Like that's what I feel like every time I think of Elon Musk here. Well, he had this one message for Vladimir Putin on Twitter, and it was, it was I would just say, astonishing. And he said, I hereby challenge Vladimir Putin to single combat. I was like, this man is awesome. (laughs) But he just fearless, right? And I think in a lot of ways, all of us who are watching this from the outside looking in, we're like, yeah, I can get behind that because we're all kind of feeling it. We're feeling the injustice. We're feeling the tragedy. We're feeling all of it that's taking place over there. And it's kind of nice to come alongside somebody who's kind of saying what we're feeling. I have no idea what that fight would look like, but I would pay to watch it. <laughs> but here's where this, this illustration, if you will, kind of falls short. It is this kind of carnal, worldly standard of how we handle conflict, right? And I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if there becomes this movement, maybe there already is and I'm blind to it, of like Elon Musk for president, right? That's kind of how we do things. We find somebody who says something we can get behind or is really strong in a certain kind of way, and we're like, let's, let's do it. Let's promote this guy. But I paint this picture to contrast what we are going to see today. Jesus comes in, and he comes in to fight. He comes in to do a warrior's battle, But he does so not with the intention to provoke and not to do so in a worldly, carnal sort of way or strategy. But he does so in a very humble, service-oriented sort of way. And this is what we'll see in the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and specifically 8 through is this juxtaposition of a humble king and a warrior who overtakes his enemies. And that is something Elon Musk can't do, really any of us. This is something that is done 
by Christ alone, and not just in the physical realm. I mean, this whole Elon Musk thing, this whole Russia thing is in the physical realm, but Jesus is not just talking about a physical realm. He's also speaking of a spiritual realm, something far deeper, something that he's going after. And so he is seeking to triumph the heart. Triumph the heart. And so as we consider just life in general, and we consider what it is we're looking for in a hero, if you will, ask yourself that question. What kind of hero are you looking for? What kind of leader are you looking for? What kind of warrior? What kind of victor is it that would be the right kind in your mind? And I hope today that as we work through this passage, we would see and behold Jesus, a warrior, a victor, a king, who goes in and he captures, he invades hostile environments, namely hostile hearts. Jesus is not intimidated. He will not be intimidated. He is strong, but he comes in fighting a different sort of fight. (laughs) He's not tweeting the Roman government saying, let's meet in the courtyard. But he has a different strategy, a divine strategy, one that is far more impactful than anything we would ever see this side of heaven. And so I want us to see Jesus, this humble yet triumphant King, And so, verse 28, we begin. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead of them, going up to Jerusalem. Now, to just kind of build in some context here, Luke, the Gospels make account of this triumphant entry, if you will, a triumphal entry. And Luke's account is going to have a little bit less of a description than, say, Matthew um, will, but what we do have here is this bigger picture of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Luke as really fulfilling the Psalms and the prophets. You see that as you go on into uh, the road to Emmaus, as Jesus, after Jesus resurrected and he comes back and he's having conversation and then he meets up with the disciples, one of the last things he tells them is that he has come to fulfill all the Psalms and the prophets in that way. Luke helps paint that picture. And so what Luke is doing here is he's continuing to give us that sort of picture. When Jesus had said these things, these things referring back to the verses prior in chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And it is this picture, Jesus speaks in parabolic form here, as in a parable, in a story of what his relationship to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's relationship to him is like. And it does come off of the backdrop of the Old Testament. Everything that was prophesied concerning the Messiah, concerning the Christ, is going to happen with Christ. And Jesus essentially kind of lays that out in the form of a parable. If you were to, and I'm not going to read all these verses here, but Jesus approaches in verse 11, he approaches... Jerusalem, and because they supposed, that is the disciples supposed that the kingdom was to come immediately, Jesus stopped them and he had a conversation with them 
telling them this parable of the ten minas. And here in this story, what you do have is a king, a ruler. And you also have citizens in verse 14. And these citizens hated the king. They hated him, it says. And they sent delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. The parable continues on. And at the very end in verse 27, Jesus identifies the king and the enemies. And he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The picture being, as Jesus enters into or moves towards Jerusalem, He is the one who is hated by His own people. The citizens, Israel, Jerusalem, hating their own King, maybe not even realizing specifically Jesus is the King of the Old Testament. And so He illustrates that He is the rejected Messiah but he is not deterred. He doesn't paint this picture in chapter 19, 11 and on saying, you know what, nobody likes me here. They're all just going to kill me. They're going to come after me. And I, you know what, I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to turn away from it. But rather, Jesus presses in undeterred, showing his disciples that this is what it is. This is how it must be. And so verses 29 through 34, we then see this rejected king, undeterred, humbly coming in as Savior King. And so Jesus, in verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, so we're just outside of Jerusalem here, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. We don't know who, which two disciples. He has all of his disciples here. We'll see that in a moment. But he picks two of them. He sends them out saying, Go into the village in front of you where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. I have a feeling there might be more to the conversation than that, but it's very to the point. What are you doing? You're stealing my animal. No, the Lord needs it. Okay, take it. (laughs) But here's this picture. Jesus comes in to the city of Jerusalem. Why? What is going on here? This isn't just some any old normal day in the city of Jerusalem, we are embarking upon the Passover week. This is a festive time, a celebration where millions of Jews from all over the diaspora, all over the dispersion, all over the known world have traveled in to celebrate the Passover. The Passover, if we remember just in short, is the time that we remember when God saved His people from the hand of the Egyptians. That night, before he delivered them out, he had them sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, put it over the doorposts of their home, and the, um, and the Lord would send the destroyer to pass over the homes, that's the Passover, 
and those whose homes were not covered in the blood of the lamb, their firstborn son or their firstborn was destroyed. That is why it's called the Passover. And the Israelites were covered by the blood, and they were not destroyed. They were delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. And of course, the theological implications of that are so rich and so deep throughout Scripture, but that is the festival that we have taking place. So there is no small amount of people in the city of Jerusalem. He has an entire city, nation of people in one city during a very, very important time. And of course, as we know, in a few short days, He will be the one sacrificed on the cross for our sins. He will be the one who fulfills perfectly the blood of the Passover lamb. And so what we have here, we have this arrangement to get this donkey, to get this colt. And we don't have any idea how this has been set up. It's possible a couple ways. First is, it's just a divine appointment. God just has worked this out. The other is that Jesus has intentionally had conversations leading up to this, letting people know that He is going to have His disciples come and request this donkey for His use, and these arrangements have been made. Regardless of how the arrangements were made, this is a divine appointment. Jesus is purposely choosing to fulfill the passage that we will see from Zechariah chapter 9. He comes in undeterred with the purpose to declare a message and ultimately save a people. And so he arranges a donkey, one that no one has sat on before, really kind of indicating that there is a special, unique purpose here for no one else other than Jesus. He is going to be the first one to sit upon this donkey's back. Now, in Luke's Gospel here, he does not highlight the passage from Zechariah. I know I've mentioned Zechariah a couple times here. Luke does not cite that passage. But we do see that, especially in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. And I bring that up because I believe what we're seeing, even here in Luke's gospel, is that fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. So if you want, you're welcome to jump over to Zechariah chapter 9. And I know we just read it this morning, but I'm going to read these verses again. In Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here we have this picture of this messianic King who comes in, who is going to come. And to kind of paint a little bit of context here, if I need to move this again for feedback purposes, let me know. I don't know who the guy is to tell me, but just let me know. But here we have this messianic prophecy of a king who comes and who will come to bring peace. Now, Zechariah is a prophet in a time when Israel was under uh, the rule of the Babylonians. The temple had been built. 
So Zephaniah prophesies, hey, build the temple. Zechariah comes in, and he doesn't sit here and prophesy, build the temple. He prophesies covenant renewal. The book of Zechariah is not so much focused on the city of Jerusalem or the building that is the temple, but he's focused more on the heart, the focus of the people. The heart of the people being able to worship. And so there is a temple that is built. We have to remember when Israel was captured, then Judah to the south, Jerusalem was sacked. It was taken over. It was completely destroyed. Their place of worship was completely taken away. And then God allowed it to be rebuilt. And so we have the second, second temple period. But we never have a king being reestablished again. We never have the full worship uh, of the Jews coming back into the temple again. It's kind of like a slow and coming. Slow and coming. And so now we have this temple, Zechariah is prophesying, but we have a temple and it's still lacking. It's still lacking. There's still no peace. And if you were to just study a little bit of history, what you would see is many years later after the prophet of Zephaniah, in the year 164, you have a revolt. You have what is called the Maccabean Revolt. It lasts about seven years. Basically, the Jews had enough. The Babylonians were over the Jews, and then the Greeks. And the Greeks were not pleasant people. They were oppressing. They were enslaving. It was no better than the Babylonians or even the Assyrians. And so, a Jewish man rose up, and he fought back against the Greeks. And this is what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And you see that Hellenistic dynasty or empire then falling. The Greeks fall during that time. And this is where you begin to see then in Jewish tradition the, the celebration of Hanukkah taking place. Hanukkah is where the Jews get to celebrate the time that they were able to go back and actually worship in the temple. So the Jews, for a long period of time, had the temple standing before them, but there was no freedom of religion. Let me put it that way. And then as soon as they had revolted against this tyrannical government, the Greeks, they were able to then reestablish their freedom of religion and go back into the temple and worship again. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Wow, yes, we get to go back in and worship. But as history would have it, (laughs) It wouldn't stay that way for very long. Because by the time the 30s hit in 30 BC, 37 BC, Herod the Great comes in and he takes over that whole revolt. He takes over the Jews in that way and Rome comes in and completely now has control. All this time they had worked for independence, autonomy, hey, this freedom of religion, everything that we want. And this is where you started to see in history the regions of Galilee, Samaria, all of these areas starting to develop because that freedom was there. But then Rome came back in and just squashed it. But the Jews still had some freedom to to practice. But they were still missing a king. Still missing that full, true freedom as the people of God. 
And this is what we see in Zechariah's prophecy as well. If you were to go read verses 10 through, or 11 through 13, you'll see. Let me just read it right now. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. God is saying, I am going to set the prisoners free. In the time of Greece, you had prisoners. And it appears that they were very thirsty in lands with no water. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And so I'm telling you all of this because a lot of times we will hear from the pulpit or just in general that in the time of Jesus, there was this nationalistic movement. There's this idea of a nationalistic Messiah. Somebody who's going to come back in and be this political king, this political Messiah. And if this is the case, if this is true, this helps paint that picture. That after the temple was built, there was a time of religious freedom, and then that religious freedom was taken away, And now the Jews are seeking for that freedom again. It's almost like we've got the temple here. Our people are coming back. We are just so close. And it's almost like the Jews of Jesus' day are trying to realize the kingdom. They're trying to usher it in in their own power, in their own way, if you will, at times. And so Jesus comes in. Yeah, the nation is seeing they need a Messiah King, but they're not understanding what that Messiah King is to actually do or actually be. I just want to say this. If I have lost any of you, please talk to me afterwards. I've tried to make this clear. Some of you may be like, I don't even know what you just said. So I want to apologize if that's you. But Jesus comes in to get to, get to the point. Not as the nationalistic king, but as the divine king. He doesn't come in to overthrow and reestablish the physical Jerusalem and the physical Israel as they had possibly hoped. He doesn't come in as the political Messiah. Instead, He'll come in as the divinely appointed Messiah, coming not for brick and mortar and city limits, but coming for the hearts of evil men. And so we begin to see that. So Jesus gets the donkey, the two disciples get it, and they will bring it back to Him. In verses 35-38, through it says this, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Their cloaks, this idea, if you were to go back to Second Kings chapter 9 in the time of King Jehu, This throwing the cloaks down in front of the donkey is this posture of submission. 
this posture of submission. What you'll notice that is not here in Luke's Gospel are the palm branches. You see that in Matthew's Gospel, the palm branches being broken off and laid down as well, which is why we get the terminology Palm Sunday. Luke doesn't put it in here. It is a weird image because palms, palm, the palm branches are associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast that happens in the fall. This setting is in the spring, and this is the Passover. Two completely different things. But there may be some sort of unique, kind of difficult, convoluted Jewish understanding and celebration. Maybe for like us, Christmas in July, right? That Hallmark Channel kind of feeling. Maybe they're sitting here in the spring going, yeah, it's, it's Christmas in July here. And so this way of celebrating the fullness of what God is doing at this time. But here we have... It says that it is the multitude of the disciples. So the full multitude, all of the disciples are here, and they're the ones who are initiating this push, initiating this sort of praise as Jesus comes in. And the crowd would join along with them. But here's the thing. The crowd, and even the disciples, don't even understand fully what it is that they're saying, but they are going along with it. But here's what they are saying for sure. And it is based out of Psalm 118, verse 26, which says this. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This was a typical greeting during the time of festivals. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd may not at all understand that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, as they're saying this, but what they are doing is they're saying these scriptures and they're saying them following the lead of the disciples and Jesus understands exactly who He is and understands exactly the scriptures and that He is the one who will ultimately fulfill it. And so Jesus comes and Luke points out that He is King. Luke puts that in intentionally. And He is the one who comes. And this idea of coming in, the one who comes, as both fulfillment of the Old Testament, but also of what John the Baptist said, of the one who would come. And Jesus shows up realizing this. And so Jesus is the one who then fulfills the Scripture. Even if the people aren't in full understanding. Jesus even predicted this back in Luke chapter 13, 31-35. He told His disciples this in particular. He says, oh my God. At the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox. He was not... He was not complimenting his looks, should I say. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow, in the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, Jesus says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is saying the words, yet they have no idea the words that they are saying because as Seth had mentioned earlier, this same crowd that is saying, blessed is he, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus knows the timing. Jesus had spent a long time with the disciples telling them that not to tell everybody what his full plan was. He mentioned several times that he was to be delivered over, that he was to die, that he was to resurrect. And they were not to go and share that news. But a time would come when that would be necessary. And now the time has come. And we will see in just a matter of days, as Jesus begins to flip the, the tables in the, in the temple and start challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees, speaking to them truthfully about who He is, it won't take long for them to turn and want Him killed. And eventually, He will be. And so you see this praise, the multitude of the disciples rejoicing, and they're rejoicing with a loud voice. They want Jesus to be seen. Maybe the disciples are understanding a little bit more than the crowd, but regardless, Jesus wants them to proclaim this out loud. You see this sort of praise following also Psalm 148.1, which has this idea of the messianic peace that is to come. He comes in and it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a fight. Jerusalem's not going to like Him, but He enters in humbly with the intention of bringing peace. This state of peace. But maybe not the sort of peace that they're expecting all along. And notice what it says. That they come or singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest does not say peace in heaven and on earth, but peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This picture of peace that resides in the heavens and not yet on earth, but eventually will come to earth through the sacrificial work of Christ. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a common theme of Luke. This idea of joy, this idea of peace. You see this mentioned in the birth of Christ back in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The same sort of exclamation, if you will. This picture of Psalm 85, verse 10, which says that righteousness and peace come together. This is the picture of Christ. This is the picture of the Gospel. And so... Jesus comes in, the multitude of the disciples are speaking in this way, are leading this, this really this uh, procession into the city, these shouts of joy, these shouts of praise, and we know that the city does not see it Messiah, uh, as a Messiah, and why? Because when Jesus is arrested and tried, He is never tried for what the crowd says to Him as He enters into Jerusalem. They are just thinking it is a normal sort of uh, greeting to somebody who's coming in. 
Instead, they challenge him on other matters. And so the Pharisees come in and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What they're seeing in the disciples is something uniquely different than maybe what they're seeing in the crowd, that the disciples are praising Jesus specifically as Messiah, as the Anointed One, as the One who's coming in to do the work, but again, not understanding the full extent of His work. This is the only time it's mentioned in the, the four Gospels. Luke only records this, that the rocks would cry out if the disciples do not do these things. And what you have, maybe in your own Bible there, you'll cross-reference to the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 11. And it has this telling of the stones in the wall and the, and the wooden beams in the house testifying against the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And so if this is what Luke is getting after, because we're not exactly sure, there, I think most people understand that this idea of praising Jesus, and if we don't praise Jesus, then just creation itself will praise Jesus. And that is not exactly wrong here at all. But there's also this possibility from Habakkuk. God would use the nation, the Babylonians, a wicked people, to discipline Israel. He had them capture uh, Judah the, to the south. He had them capture the temple. He had them jer- destroy Jerusalem. And in so doing, he disciplined his people for not worshiping him anymore. And this is where, if you were to read the book of Habakkuk, not very long, he tells the prophet Habakkuk, because the, the prophet is going, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Why would you have this crazy, mean, ruthless, um, oppressive government nation over us? punishing us. Are you even there? What are you doing? And then God essentially responds back saying, I'm about to do something you would not believe even if I told you. And what God is doing is that He's taking this wicked, twisted nation that is oppressing His people and He will use them to discipline His people, but then He will come back and He will destroy the Babylonians. He will judge the Babylonians for what they have done to his people. And what he tells them is this. In, this. in this punishment toward the Babylonians or the Chaldeans at this time, he says, I bear with the stones in the wall and, every, and all the, the structure that holds up the houses that you live in are a testimony. They bear witness to the fact that I am coming against you, Babylon. And if that is the understanding of what Jesus is saying, then it would probably fit in this way. That Jerusalem, the people who are sitting there shouting and celebrating Jesus' entrance into the city, are no better than the Babylonians. There is judgment coming against them. There's judgment coming against Jerusalem. There's judgment coming against the temple. And these very stones, if the disciples don't testify to who I am, these very stones will testify and bear witness against you and it will be judgment for you. And if that carries on, if that carries to be true, we see 
in the next verses 41 through 44. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem knows no peace. They don't understand peace. They they have completely rejected Jesus entirely. And he says in 44, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. And in its place will come a new temple that will rise after three days and be built upon a cornerstone which cannot be shaken. And this is Christ. And so this could possibly be what is going on. But here's all I want you to see in all of this. And all the weirdness of today's message is that Jesus enters into hostile territory. And He doesn't go in with the intention of overthrowing or starting a revolt. Or I've even had this image like He could go in and kind of like in the time of Moses when the seas parted and Israel walked through on dry ground, Jesus could just literally walk through a sea of millions of people and just watch them divinely part before Him. And as He walks past them, they just bow to the earth. And He could just carefully walk into the temple. He could walk into the Holy of Holies. And He could just bring in the full, radiant glory of God upon that place. And millions upon millions of people would bow down in a moment, in an instant. And the king could reign and everybody would have to obey in that moment. But that's not what he does. Because why? Because the people in front of him are not his enemies that he's trying to destroy. Those people who will cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him, are the very people He's dying for and will win over by His grace. Their hearts need to be changed. It's not a matter of a physical location of worship or a political change of atmosphere. It's a matter of wicked, evil hearts needing to be changed and turned back to God just like the the prophet Zechariah was was attempting to do in saying it's not about the building, it's about a restored covenantal relationship with your God. And so Jesus enters into hostile territory, knowing that they're going to kill Him. But He's not looking at them as the enemy. He's not looking to defeat them, but He's looking to win them over. The enemy is sin and death and Satan, and He will overcome them through the death and resurrection. And so I want us to remember that. That you and I are no different than the crowd who would not openly welcome Jesus in. We would not consider Him Messiah. We would be the ones who would cast the stone. We would be the ones to scourge Him. We would be the ones to drive the nails through His hands. We would be the ones saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. And yet, He comes and dies humbly, so that He could win us over. That's His goal. That's His aim. 
And so as disciples, we are then to bear witness to this. We are to rejoice loudly. We are to join in the song of the Psalms and rejoice, saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our King Jesus. And look, in all honesty, if we don't cry out, yes, creation will cry out. But instead of us being a people who are being (laughs) judged by God, we are a people who are being blessed by God, full of grace and mercy that has been bestowed upon us. So it's easy to join in a revolt. It's easy to look for a new sort of political environment and structure. But I want us to make sure that we are understanding Jesus rightly and that we are not missing Him. That we are not joining in with the crowd of Jerusalem, but we are joining in with the multitude of disciples. And that creation, when they see us as the sons and daughters of God, that they would long for our revealing as sons and daughters. They would long to see the day that we are reunited with our Jesus, as opposed to having to step up and testify as witness to the judgment coming against us. Make sense? And so, may we then...